I am Cameron, uh, one of the pastors here. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to that passage that was just read, Colossians 3, 5 through 11. And to lighten the mood just a little bit, I have entitled the sermon, Christian Stripping. Christian Stripping. And the reason for that is that uh, this week we're going to talk about some things that have to be stripped away as believers. And next week, Chris will start talking about some things that have to be put on. Well, I know we're a football town, right? But spring is here and baseball season is also here as well. Now, I'm a Braves fan and it really pains me to have to do this. Oh, it kills me. But for the purpose of this illustration, I'm going to talk about the Yankees in a positive way. For many baseball players, becoming a Yankee is the stuff that dreams are made of. From early ages, young men dream about signing contracts with the Yankees. In many ways, the narrative is you've made it to baseball heaven if you get to play under the lights in the Big Apple and put on those pinstripes. So once players sign the contract, legally they're a Yankee. That's their brand new identity. Well, then they have to live out their new identity, and they have to do this in two particular ways. They have to strip off a couple things. So first of all, they have to strip off their old uniform, right, and get ready for the pinstripes. But they also have to strip away some items related to their personal appearance. Y'all realize the Yankees have a strict appearance policy. You can't have long hair. Sorry, Scott, about that. You have to have hair above the collar of your uniform. And you also have to cut your beard. I mean, that's borderline blasphemy to have to strip those things away. And then you have to put on the Yankee uniform, which signifies your new reality. And I think Johnny Caveman Damon, if you remember this guy, the Yankees signed him in 2005. He's a prime example of this. So he had to cut off those beautiful man locks, get rid of his beard. And since the Red Sox and Yankees are bitter rivals in the Yankees' eyes, he indeed had to strip off ugly rags, oh, it kills me to say this, and put on the pure pinstripes to live out his new identity as a Yankee. Well, church, in Colossians 3, 5 through 11... Paul shows us that God desires something for us similar yet greater. We are called on through this text to embrace behavior consistent with our new reality in Jesus. Let me say that again. Paul makes it clear that we're called on to embrace new behavior that's consistent with our new reality in Christ. And so let's zoom back just for a moment to remind ourselves of the way the logic of this text works. So remember, I preached in chapter 2 that when we trust in Jesus, we have a brand new identity. Remember, the old things are passed away. In him, all things are made new. Then last week in in chapter 3, 1 through 4, Gavin taught us that we have to do what? we got to retrain our brains. We need the Word of God to renew our patterns of thought. So now in in 3, 5, Paul begins to tell us that we have to live in ways consistent Consistent with the newness of life we've come to experience in Jesus. In church, I say all that to say that it's crucial that we get the order right. Uh, how many people know that behavior change always flows from identity change? I mean, attempted moral improvement, apart from the cross work of Christ, is a fool's errand. It is spitting in the wind. The Bible says we are sinners by nature, and no matter how hard we try to change in our own power... We'll never get there. And so we need the intervening person and power of Christ. And we receive him through faith, not works. We've got to get that order right. So behavior change always flows from identity change. But 
And here's the key, but for this morning, Paul makes it clear in this text that once our identity changes, our behavior has to change as well. To be a Christian means that we become new creations. You know, church, this is really important because a lot of people try to use Jesus simply as a get-out-of-hell-free card, don't they? They imagine that he can somehow help them escape from hell, and they presume they can just keep on living like hell. But we have to realize that to be a Christian means to allow Jesus to control every single aspect of our lives. To be a believer is to surrender to his lordship. To be a Christian is to be changed and to be changing. To be a Christian is to be progressing in Christ's likeness in your life. And so, yes, that change comes gradual. We encounter many setbacks along the way. But if we are really believers, his life should be working out in our actual living. And so Paul says that regarding this new way of living, we've got to strip away a few things, put off some old behaviors. And he starts by saying in number one that we have to put to death sins of impurity. Put to death sins of impurity. And this is not most people's life verse right here, okay? But I'm going to read it, five through seven. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and here's your vocab word for the day, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. And so since we've made a commitment to be a Bible-teaching church, our commitment is whatever the Bible says, we say it, okay? So let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room. Yes, this morning we are talking about sex. Yes, your ginger pastor's skin will probably get a little redder along the way, but we will do our best to keep it appropriate for all ages. Now, when we think about verses like this, many of us might get cynical. In our sex-saturated culture, is it really possible to live out these commands? There could be a young lady asking, is it really feasible for me to save myself sexually until I'm married? Can a young man really be free from pornography? You know, that's the question I often ask when I was neck deep in it, even in Bible college. Well, here's the key to this text. This is the key to everything. You can put to death what is earthly in you because Jesus Christ died for you. Understand the imperative statement, put to death, is built on Paul's previous indicative statement in verse 3. You have died. That's really good news. That's the key to living out these new realities. So remember, in our previous passages, Paul has emphasized the active work of God on behalf of his children. Thankfully, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. And he accomplished this through Christ's work on the cross. Our old ways of living were buried with him, and we've been raised to newness of life. And then Paul makes it clear that through his death, the evil forces have been stripped of their power. Yes, they influence us. They influence us sexually. We feel this. But they do not have to master us. So I say all that to say this. The call to put to death your old desires and practices, it is doable. Listen, City Light, the fact that Christ is in you, the fact that you have union with him, it allows this imperative to be a possibility in your life. 
And so if you're here today and if you're a believer and you can't seem to get free from promiscuity or pornography, I want you to know there's real hope for you. The Holy Spirit of God can free you from your enslavement to sexual sin. But you have to put forth effort. You have to go to war. I like the way that Dallas Willard once said it. The gospel isn't against effort, it's against earning. And so we all have to exercise energy to put to death our desires. Let me remind you, war is never easy, is it? And so now let's get into the weeds of this text and see in particular what we should put away. And so verse 5b begins with these two words, sexual immorality and then impurity. And so Paul's using these words in a catch-all way. And this refers to any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. So understand the Bible is clear from start to finish. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 19, 3 through 6, that marriage is meant to be a covenant commitment between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And any sexual activity outside this arrangement is not permitted, biblically speaking. Not permitted according to the words of Jesus. Now this is a high standard, isn't it? And this is not a popular standard. If we look around and listen, look into our culture. But there's a reason for this high standard. And we'll talk more about it just a little bit later. Well, next is the word passion. And passion's a good thing. We should stir up the romantic embers for our spouses. We should be passionate toward the people that we love. But Paul has in mind here shameful passion. To be blunt, he's talking about putting to death lust. Now listen, many men rationalize here. And I have done the same thing. We say, well, isn't it better to look at a woman? That's better than touching, isn't it? Well, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've done what? You've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And then evil desire... That speaks of illicit sexual passions, like the ones that we read about in Romans 1. You know, one reason that pornography is so damaging is it opens our hearts up. It makes us susceptible to a virtually unlimited array of perverted sexual practices. It's like opening up the windows of your house during pollen season. I've learned in Nebraska, even though we get good weather, there's still the curse of sin attached to that. And so what pollen does to your lungs, pornography does to your heart. And then covetousness means greed, but when linked to these previous vices, it carries the idea of greed for sexual experiences that God does not forbid, or that God forbids. Excuse me. This happens when we begin to desire maybe these spouses of our friends, neighbors, or church members. It happens when we stay up late at night and maybe linger over the social media profiles of married women and men in our social media networks. And then Paul gets to the heart of the issue. He gives us the root of sexual sin in this simple phrase. He says, which is idolatry. See, an idol is not just some little Buddha, some little statue. An idol is something we give allegiance to besides God. And in their culture and in ours, sex is a predominant idol. And it works out like this. God gives us really good gifts. Sex is a really good gift. Amen? I guess it's just me. Okay. But 
God has set boundaries around its use. And idolatry happens when we take sex or any of God's good gifts and set them up as a God in the place of the one true God. But in case you haven't learned this life lesson yet, God's good gifts make really bad gods, don't they? They were never designed to function this way in your life. They were never designed to be your object of worship. See, when you worship the one true God, he gets the glory, and you get joy from that. But when you set up little gods in place of God, when you set up sex as a God, you'll enjoy that for a season. But that is not meant to replace God. And so the end result will always be, in the end, despair and distance from God. Well, then the bad news gets worse here. If your life is continually characterized by sexual idolatry, which indicates that you actually aren't worshiping Jesus as the one true God, verse 6 says the wrath of God is coming for you. You Again, as we look around the media, what we see in our city, in many ways this culture is one big perverse sexual playground. But what the world doesn't understand is they are playing in the train tracks. It might not come today, it might not come tomorrow, but God's wrath is coming. He's a good God, but he's also a holy God and a just God. And because of his justice, he cannot allow unrepentant sin to not be punished. And before we think that it's just all out there, verse 7 says this is the predicament we were all in apart from Jesus. Paul says, in these two, you once walked when you were living in them. So if we were to be honest this morning, and I'll be honest with you as your pastor, apart from Jesus, we all walked in sexual immorality to some extent. And we unknowingly awaited the wrath of God. But aren't you so thankful that the Spirit of God intervened in our lives and got us off those train tracks? Aren't you so thankful that when you trust in Jesus that he pays the penalty for your sin that you deserve to pay and then he shields you from the wrath of God? And I say to you that you too can be protected if you trade in your dark life of sexual sin for the pure life of Jesus Christ. Now listen, I know this is heavy, so take a breath for a moment. Again, this hits your pastor first and foremost, but listen. On a positive note, we have to understand that God is not some cosmic killjoy, is he? He's the all-wise God. He's got a reason and a design for everything that he does. So understand that when God sets up sexual boundaries, he's not trying to stifle your joy. Listen, young people, he's actually trying to protect your heart. When God prohibits something, it's always for our good. And here's why God sets up boundaries around sex. Sex is a beautiful gift, and it's multifaceted. He gives us sex for pleasure and procreation. But here's another really important reason for sex. It intimately connects you to the person you experience it with. It's a mystery, but the Bible says during intercourse, our souls literally mingle with the person we experience it with. We not only become one flesh physically... But we also become one flesh spiritually. And listen, you become bonded to whomever you have that experience with. You know, this morning I wonder if there's anybody here who's accidentally glued themselves with super glue to an object. And I'm afraid to say it, but one time I was trying to fix my grandma's toilet seat and I accidentally glued my hand to her toilet seat. 
And so not only was it embarrassing, it was incredibly painful when I ripped my hand away. It tore away some flesh. So common sense says we should not adopt as a hobby going around and bonding ourselves with superglue to objects in our house. We're going to experience some pain when we rip away. Yet all the time, even Christians, we haphazardly bond ourselves sexually to people, to individuals that we don't intend on marrying, to people that we might not end up marrying. You know, listen, ladies, I'm going to be really frank here. Unless there's a ring on your finger and a date on the calendar, there's no guarantee a wedding's going to happen. So you need to protect your heart in case it doesn't. Listen, there is no such thing as a no-strings-attached sexual arrangement. Whether it's a one-night stand or a long-term relationship, if you, if you go your separate ways, a portion of your soul tears in the process. And many of us, including myself, can testify to this reality. And even if you don't go your separate ways, the Bible makes it clear that, that sex is not good for your soul until your wedding night. Again, God's good design is chastity or purity before marriage and fidelity or faithfulness to your marriage after marriage. And anything outside that boundary distorts His good design and it damages us in the process. And we can feel that. We know that's true. Now, as I said earlier, if you haven't lived according to God's good design, there's hope for you. The glorious news of the gospel is what? That He forgives us from our sins He can free us from our indiscretions. Aren't you so thankful that the blood of Jesus washes away every sin, including our sexual sin? If you're struggling with this this morning, listen and allow these words to soothe your soul. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I have personally seen the Spirit of God break in and free me from a pornographic addiction in my college years. And I have seen Him do the same thing over and over in the lives of dozens of young people. I've seen the Spirit of God break in and call a man to holiness, to pursue purity in his relationship, to be intentional with the woman he's with, and to lead them toward marriage. Listen, there's hope in the gospel. God's grace brings healing and restoration. God is a patient and loving God. And He does offer us forgiveness when we fail. But listen, after we get back on our feet, God does not relent. He demands that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. But He's relentless so that He might receive the glory and so that we might receive real joy as we walk in sexual purity. We need to stick to His good design so we minimize the damage that we do to ourselves and the damage we do to other people. All right, we're going to shift away from sex for a minute, take a break, go smoke a cigarette, uh, get some water, whatever you need to do, take a breath. I'm in this with you. I know this is hard. But again, the Bible says that we got to say it, right? Amen? That's just the way we roll around here. All right, regarding our new way of living, which flows from our new identity in Jesus... Paul shows us some additional stripping that has to take place. And so not only must we put away sins of impurity, Paul now says, hey, put away some sins of disunity. So number two, put to death sins of disunity. And we see this in verses 8 through 9a. 
So listen to this. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Um, Now we're not going to spend quite as much time here because, man, you're a life-giving, uplifting bunch of people. I want to commend you at this point because you use your words incredibly well. In fact, this is the most loving and unified church I have ever been a part of. Brittany and I have felt like family from day one. With that being said, though, we want to stay this way, don't we? And Pastor Cameron doesn't know what happens in your house. Or you might be a brand new believer and like Pastor Chris in the early days, unable to speak a paragraph without dropping some choice cuss words. So I think we can be helped with this. And so if the first catalog of sins deals with the heart, that is, sins of impurity that corrupt the heart, Paul shifts into sins that disrupt the harmony of the Christian community. And Paul says, kill them too. We've got to step on their throat as well. And here's the first thing we have to kill. Anger and wrath, or as some translations say, rage. Now, these words are similar, but here's the nuance. Uh, anger is this growing feeling of, of rage, the, the growing feeling of hatred, and then rage is when the outburst actually happens. It's when you get the crazy eyes. It's when your fists start shaking and your tongue starts flapping. You've been there, haven't you? I know I have. And then malice is when you are full on sinning with your mouth. The filter from your head to your lips has left the building at this point. And then slander is when you move beyond the immediate reason for why you're angry, and then you move into character defamation. It sounds like this. Well, you're this. You never that. Just fill in the blank. You always. Does any of that sound familiar? And then obscene talk is when we turned up to 10 and our language becomes abusive and filthy. And at this point, I'm going to substitute some Christian cuss words to give you an idea of this. What in the literal flood do you think you're doing? Go straight to Sheol, you son of a Beelzebub. I mean, we get the idea, right? It's when you start reaching down deep, you're so angry, you dirty, you blank. And then in verse 9, Paul says, don't lie to one another. Well, this is when we just start making stuff up. We're so angry. Gossip, slander. You know, say Pastor Justin ticks me off. And in case you're not aware, Justin probably has the most beautiful man beard I've ever seen. And I've got a lot of beard envy at this point. And say Justin and I are mad at each other, and suddenly I hear somebody pay him a compliment on his beard. Well, making a lie sounds something like this. Hey, 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 don't get too excited about that beard. I don't know if you know this or not. The word on the street is it's a press-on. It's not even really real. He got that down at the Amish store. And so Justin's just a wannabe hipster. And so it's fun to joke about stuff like this. But again, the reality is words are incredibly powerful. And God means for us to use our words to lift up other people. It's amazing how words can be life-giving, how, encouragement, how life-giving encouragement can be. It's amazing how the dynamic of your house and your church changes when you have a DNA of encouragement built in. But listen, words also have the power to tear down, don't they? And if rage is left unchecked, and if gossip and slander breaks out in a church, I've seen this. This is my last church at times. And if leaders were disparaged, if members were talking poorly about them, 
It creates all kinds of discord and disunity. And ultimately, it damages our gospel witness in the community. So let me give you some quick and practical help as it relates to controlling sins of speech. If a brother or sister offends you, a husband or wife gets angry at you, and by the way, it's going to happen, we're all sinful people, and none of us have halos. So number one, be really quick to forgive. When that happens, be quick to forgive. Look over the offense if you can. Our first foot forward should always be to lavish grace and mercy and forgiveness on other people. Why? Because that's what Christ done for us. He didn't hold back. He went all the way to the cross to forgive us, and we shouldn't hold back either. But secondly, if you can't look over the offense, if you've been really, really hurt, well, then you've got two choices. You can go and talk to other people about the person that's hurt you, and that's gossip. And gossip creates disunity. Or you can take the biblical path. And what is the biblical path? Somebody say it out loud. Go to the person. It's Matthew 18. It means you you actually man up, and though it might be awkward, woman up, and go in a spirit of love and humility and pursue a path of forgiveness and reconciliation. And if it's a real grievous sin, you might have to bring in a mediator, like Matthew 18 says, a pastor or another trusted party. But going to a person as opposed to talking around the person creates unity. It creates reconciliation. And understand that a unified church pleases our Heavenly Father because it points to the gospel, which reconciles us to God and has also reconciled us to one another. Amen? All right, so that's the put-off part, okay? We've got the painful stuff behind us for the moment. So you might be saying, hey, I'd love to put that off, but how do we do it? How do we actually get rid of sins of impurity and disunity? Well, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us hanging, and he gives us some instructions. And it's actually what we let in with. So number three is, understand your new reality in Jesus. There's a lot of practicals we could talk about, but the preeminent thing that we need to get a hold of when it comes to putting to death evil desires is understanding our new reality in Christ. And Paul wants us to get two aspects of this new reality. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. First of all, you have a new identity in Jesus if you've turned from your sins and trusted in him. Notice again the second half of verse 9 on into verse 10. And here's the key word. I'm praying the Spirit of God helps us to get this. It's the word seeing. May he give us illumination to see this, that you have put off old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So again, remind you of your glorious reality. When you turn from your sins, trust in Jesus, you're a brand new creation. Your old man has died, and you've come alive to a brand new man or woman. And your new self is cloaked, it's wrapped up in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So in him, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your filth. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus credited to your account. That's your new identity. And so the moment we're saved, we simultaneously become citizens of heaven while we remain residents on this earth. And understand someday that heaven will be a perfect place. There we will experience the very best version of ourselves. Yes, you'll still be recognizable, 
I'll probably still be a ginger, unfortunately, and I'll still have my accent. My wife will as well. But yourself, your identity, your, your personality, your physical characteristics, they'll be recognizable. But here's the key difference. There you'll be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. It'll be the very best version of you. And that'll be your glorious reality forever and forever and forever. Amen. But in the meantime, Paul says we're to be daily renewed into that image. And because of this new reality in Jesus, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, he actually empowers us to to gradually move into that reality in the here and now. So church, the command here is to, in your actions, to increasingly become what you will be for all eternity. And so in heaven, will a man be filled with lust? Will we practice sexual immorality? Well, absolutely not. It's ludicrous to think that. That couldn't survive in close proximity to the purity of God. Well, since that's the case, it makes sense then that we go ahead and put those practices to death here. They do not match up to our new reality. And they, don't, and they won't be present for all eternity. So we've got to get busy killing them. You know, think about it this way. Imagine you're a football player and you've got good hands you can catch, but you're slow and kind of really bad at everything else. And you were adopted and then suddenly you find out that your birth parents were actually concert pianists. And it's a revolutionary discovery. Man, what have I been, what have I been doing with my whole life? So you suddenly put the football down, put the shoulder pads down, and you devote yourself to the piano. You put away old practices that don't match up with your newfound identity. And so City Light, our motivation should be then to put away all sinful practices that don't match up with our new reality in Jesus. But not only do you have a brand new identity, you also have a brand new family. And I thank God for this. I'm so thankful God did not call us to live the Christian life in isolation. We trust Jesus, we get him, we get eternal life. But we also gain a loving and an unlikely spiritual family, don't we? And it's unlikely in the sense that it's typically people that the old us might not normally associate with. But the gospel removes the typical barriers associated with human relationships. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 11 when he says, Here there's not Greek and Jew... Uh, circumcised, uncircumcised. Remember I talked a lot about circumcision in my last sermon here. Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So without getting into the history of all this, Paul is simply demonstrating that the gospel destroys racial, cultural, and social boundaries. So someday we will enjoy a brand new heavenly citizenship, but it will be alongside fellow heavenly citizens from every nation, tribe, and tongue, as Revelation 7, 9 says. So understanding this, Jesus then empowers us to live out this new reality now. We need to strive to become relationally with one another what will be in heaven someday, namely, in perfect harmony with people a lot different than us. You know, we need to keep being a church that reaches out to the refugee. We should move toward the stranger and the outsider. And I would even say, we need to do the hard work of racial reconciliation. Understanding that as a majority white church, some of the very best work we can do is to simply listen. We should listen well 
to what our black and brown brothers and sisters are saying to us about what they're experiencing in this culture and maybe even in our churches. Can we take on that kind of posture of humility? So in heaven, thank you, in heaven will we slander? Uh, Will we sin against others with our words? Well, absolutely not. That's ludicrous to think about. You'll never have a relational conflict there. So we will here. We'll never be perfect in this existence. But we have to do everything in our power to put to death desires, disunity, that doesn't match up with our future family reality. Amen? Put to death deeds of disunity. Well, another reality is, it's kind of more bad news, our fight, our war with sinful desire will never be over until we're dead. It's a battle. Put your boots on. Tuck your shirt in. we got to get after it. But understanding our new reality helps us to win many battles along the way. You can live a victorious Christian life. Now, in case you haven't heard, I want to drop some family news on you because you really are a spiritual family. My family is hundreds of miles away. Uh, My wife, Brittany, who read that beautiful scripture passage, she is pregnant. And we praise God for it. And I couldn't help but uh, wonder if somebody was cutting onions as I saw little babies on the stage. My wife reading scripture. I had to suck it up before I preached. And so my wife and I, we decided to give procreation a try. And God was gracious. And he blessed us with a new little life that is set to enter the world on December 1st. Uh, thank you. Yeah, praise God. I'm hoping that that, uh, I'm hoping that might help to ease the depression I felt this last winter. So we'll see. May contribute. I don't know. But but listen, this new little life, while we rejoice in he or she, give my wife some terrible evening sickness, okay? I didn't know that was a thing. I'm an ignorant man. I've heard of morning sickness my whole life. Did not know evening sickness was a thing. And sometimes I can be dense and really slow to pick up on stuff, but, but I'm learning slowly, being slowly sanctified, that when my wife is having a moment, sometimes the very best thing I can do for her is to give her just a little bit of space. I'm learning that my face is not always helpful. And so I go out and run a lot during the evening sometimes when she's struggling and would prefer for me not to be around. Well, a few evenings ago, I was out on my regular running route. And I get behind three really attractive ladies. And it's really warm outside, so they didn't have a whole lot on. So in this moment, I had an important choice to make. I could maintain my pace enjoy the sights, feed my flesh, or I could move along. I could speed up and pass them up. And I have to confess to you, I felt this war raging within. I knew I needed to kick it up a gear and get out of there, but my flesh did not want that. And then Jesus in me, right? The Bible says in verse 11, Christ is in me. The Holy Spirit of God began to convict me, and the Spirit of God reminded me of my brand new realities. And here's the internal conversation that the Spirit of God made happen. Cameron, you're a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. And lust is not befitting of a kingdom citizen. Cameron, I have given you the gracious gift of a beautiful woman who's now pregnant. And I am calling on you to use every ounce of your energy to be faithful to her in that covenant you made with her. Do that now. Cameron, you're a pastor. How can you stand before people and proclaim that we should fight sexual immorality, purity, if you're not fighting it yourself? Cameron, you're going to be a daddy in a few months, and you need to set the pace for your family 
and how you relate to the opposite sex. So as I reflected on my new realities, church, it hit me like a ton of bricks that what I had at home was, oh, far better, so much better. And I can honestly say in that moment that my greater desire, even though I had a lesser desire to stay there, my greater desire was to be back in that apartment with my sick and puking wife (laughs) than to be on that trail behind those ladies. So in my mind, I said, get thee behind me, Satan, I got out of there. Now listen, listen, I still sin plenty. I fell often. Pastors aren't perfect men. But I will say, on this particular day, I won the battle. And I won the battle because I reflected on my new reality in Jesus. And City Light, I'm convinced that when we face temptation, if we'll just slow down long enough to rehearse all the beautiful new realities that we have in Jesus, we'll always conclude that sin is never worth it. I've discovered that as a 35-year-old man, that so much of the Christian life is reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ and what we have in Him. Let me pray for us and we'll take communion together. Father, oh God, thank you for this word. Lord, it's a cutting word. And I know I've been convicted through this word. And God, I pray for two things to happen. God, may you convict us. You're a good God, and you discipline people that you love. You get us back on the right track, and God, we need that. But God, as we get convicted, may we see, oh, there's much grace that abounds. May we see we can really have cleansing in Christ. We confess our sins. You'll be faithful to cleanse us and to free us and to put us back on our feet. So, Spirit of God, minister to us. Speak to hearts in the way that they need to be spoken to. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.